Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. That's ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Well, let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am thy servant. I am thy servant and the son of thy handmaid. Thou hast loosed my bonds. I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of thee, O Jerusalem. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let's pray. O Lord, who washes away our sins, let the life of thy humble servants be as precious in thy sight as is the death of thy saints, that loose from the bonds of sin we may attain a foretaste of the joys of Jerusalem to come. Wherefore we say, Glory be to the Father, who is gracious, righteous, and merciful. Glory be to the Son, from whom we receive the cup of salvation. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, who hath broken our bonds in sunder. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing to work our way through Westminster Shorter Catechism question four. So I'm going to uh, just read this for us. And um, actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the question, and then you can read along in the bulletin. We'll all together respond with the answer. So by the time we're done with this, we should all have this one memorized. So Westminster Shorter Catechism question four asks, what is God? Answer, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Uh, here we confess that the one divine essence is eternal and unchangeable. As it says in Psalm 102, But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever. Thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. Likewise, in James 1.17 it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. In God, there is no change. And from this negation of change ability follows the truth that God also is eternal. But what is eternity? What is eternity? The best uh, definition for eternity comes from a man named Boethius. Does anyone, has anyone heard of Boethius before? Does anyone know? 
Okay, so Boethius is one of the most important theologians in church history, so we're going we're gonna to get you up to speed here. So uh, Boethius, he, he, was, he was a 6th century scholar, uh, Roman senator, historian, philosopher, magistrate, and martyr for the Christian faith. And he also gives us one of the most important definitions for the doctrine of the Trinity, for what a, a person is. He has the most famous definition for that as well. So here, um, he gives us this very careful definition of eternity, which is this. He says, eternity is the simultaneously whole and perfect possession of infinite life. Eternity is the simultaneously whole and perfect possession of infinite life. So when we say that God is eternal, we are saying that God has no beginning and no end and no succession in between. We are saying that the very measure of time, with its before and after, with its past, present, and future, in no way applies to God. But rather, this very idea of measuring time is an apprehension only of our creaturely minds. For eternity is nothing else but God himself. He is eternal. He has the simultaneously whole and perfect possession of infinite life. God does not experience time or change like creatures do. He is not a creature. And we, who are creatures, cannot step outside of our creatureliness to begin to understand what God's eternity might be like. The closest that we can come is by analogy to things that are lesser than us, like the distance between ourselves and a two-dimensional drawing that a kid might draw. A line on the page cannot understand what a Rubik's Cube is. A stick figure drawing cannot understand what marriage is. Two-dimensional beings do not have the categories to grasp what is in three dimensions. And so also with God, who is beyond being, above time and space, who is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. To contemplate this should remind us of our need to confess our sins. So as you're able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. These are the words of God. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. Now as he walked by the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further hence, he saw James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. 
And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went, and went after him. Let's pray. Father, as we consider the calling of the first disciples, we ask that you would teach us to follow your son, the Lord Jesus, more faithfully, more immediately, and more joyfully, whatever the cost. We ask for your Holy Spirit now in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. When Jesus calls people to follow him, he often does so at very inconvenient times. God has a timing of his own, and sometimes it surprises us. It interrupts our routines. It messes with our schedules. And if that has been your experience of the Christian life, you are in good company because that was the experience of at least the first four disciples. Simon, also will be renamed Peter, Andrew, James, and John are all called to follow Jesus in the middle of the workday. They are simply told to drop everything and follow him. And the force of our text this morning is uh, to make us wrestle with this question. Are we willing to do the same? If Christ were to come and interrupt us, In the middle of all the things that you have going on, are you willing to drop everything and do what he says? Go where he goes, follow where he leads. That is the question before us this morning. Looking at our text, there are three basic movements to these seven verses. So in verses 14 and 15, we have the arrival of Jesus to Galilee. And then in verses 16 to 18, we have the calling of Simon and Andrew, and then verses 19 to 20, the calling of James and John. And together, uh, these three movements constitute the beginning of Christ's public ministry. This is uh, that moment in every great story where the protagonist sets off on his journey, and he's going to meet some people along the way. He has already done battle against Satan. He was in the wilderness with wild beasts like we saw last week. And now it is time to find some friends for the journey. Uh, We might say in the language of Middle Earth that we have left the Shire and are off on our adventure. So uh, let us to our text. Starting in verse 14, it says, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Here we have the passing of the baton from John to Jesus. John was a man who stood at the intersection of two ages, between the time of the law and the prophets of which he was the last, and the time of the gospel and the kingdom of which Christ is the first. So John, with One foot in the old age and another foot in the new is cast into prison. He is silenced. And unlike Elijah, who miraculously was caught up into heaven, and John comes in the spirit of Elijah, uh, unlike Elijah, uh, John is locked up. And as we know, he is eventually beheaded. This is what Jesus says about John in Matthew 11. He says, Among them that are born of women... There hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Think about that. Among those born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. That means 
that John was greater than Moses. John was greater than David, greater than Solomon, greater than Elijah and Elisha. And then Jesus adds this. He says, Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So as great as John and all of our uh, uh, patriarch Bible heroes are, all the prophets of the old law, as great as they were, the least in Christ's kingdom surpasses them. This is how momentous the coming of Christ's kingdom is. And so with John's imprisonment, uh, the sun sets on the time of the law, and with Christ's arrival, you have the dawn of a new era beginning. As it says in Isaiah 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. On them the light has shone. So after John and the era that he represents is imprisoned, Jesus, the light of the world, comes into Galilee. Galilee of all places. Galilee was a region that was bustling with commerce, so he's no longer in the wilderness now. And it is here that in Mark's gospel he first announces uh, the gospel. God's kingdom has come. In verse 15, we are given uh, the contents of this message. It says, uh, Jesus comes and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Here in this single sentence is the essence of the Christian religion. There are two declarations followed by two imperatives. Two statements of fact of truth, of reality, of what is, from which necessarily flow two commands. So the first declaration, the first truth Jesus makes is that the time is fulfilled. What time is Jesus talking about here? Well, Jesus is talking about the time that was prophesied in the Garden of Eden 4,000 years prior. The time in which a son would be born to crush the serpent's head. The time in which the true bridegroom would come to rescue his bride and the two would become one flesh. Jesus is especially talking about the time of which King Nebuchadnezzar dreamt and Daniel interpreted. As it says in Daniel 2.44 at the end of the vision, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. This is the kingdom that Jesus comes to bring. Everyone knew about it. Everyone knew Daniel's prophecies, and we're uh, trying to count the weeks and figure out when this kingdom would come. And that is the time that Jesus comes and announces that is fulfilled. What the prophets called uh, the last days or the latter days, is what Jesus is referring to when he says, the time is fulfilled. In Jesus, the last days of the old creation have come. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So this is the time that Jesus announces as fulfilled. And with it, all those prophecies about the latter days start to come to fruition. And there are a lot of them. The second declaration Jesus makes is that the kingdom of God is at hand. And because this is such a common phrase for us Christian people, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, uh, 
you kind of need to think about uh, a kingdom in a different way. So uh, perhaps the best way to understand the force of this statement, the kingdom of God is at hand, um, is to imagine a great messenger going to all of the city capitals, to all the central business districts, all the places where public life happens. And he announces to all who can hear that the kingdom of Russia has arrived. The kingdom of Vladimir Putin has arrived. Imagine that was on all of the social media, all the major news networks, everyone's talking about, did you hear the kingdom of Russia is here? How would you receive that news? Well, it would probably first depend on if you're Russian, right? (laughs) But it, it would depend on what you thought about Russia and Vladimir Putin. Are your values and lifestyle aligned with the ways of Russia? Do you welcome their arrival or do you resent it? Maybe you think, you know, anything could be better than President Biden and the Democrats. Bring on the Russians. You might... (laughs) Was that wink? (laughs) You might think, you know, do I stand to benefit and profit from uh, the kingdom of Russia? Or, you know, will it be detrimental to my business, my personal interests? You can imagine there are all sorts of potential reactions someone might have to this announcement. And so it is when Jesus comes and announces the kingdom of God is at hand. For those who love God and are aligned with the values and morals of the kingdom, uh, this is the best news in the world. But for those who do not love God, or for those who worship other gods, For those whose values and interests are at home with the kingdoms of this world, to them, this gospel is a threat. It is a challenge to the present regime. And in this sense, Jesus' preaching is spiritual warfare. It is David taunting Goliath before severing head from body. I will give your flesh to the birds. Jesus' preaching is a king offering terms of peace before inevitable invasion. That is what the gospel is. It is militant. It is heaven invading earth. And it is an offense to those who do not love God and salvation to those who do. So if it is indeed true that the kingdom of God has come, then the commands that follow should be rather obvious. Jesus says, therefore, you must repent and believe the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel. What is repentance? Uh, Repentance simply means to have a change of mind, to have a change of ways, to turn away from your vomit, from the corrupt and despicable things that come out of you, and to look upon all that is good and true and beautiful in Jesus. Repentance is renouncing the devil and his works, forsaking sin, and loving and embracing righteousness. That is the repentance Jesus demands, because with the arrival of the kingdom is the arrival of justice, the arrival of judgment. And Jesus wants you to be on the right side of that. So he's telling you how. What is it then to believe the gospel? Well, to believe the gospel is simply to live by faith. It is to believe what Jesus says when he says it. As it says in Habakkuk 2.4, The soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. 
The opposite of faith is pride. The opposite of faith in God is faith in self, what we would call self-reliance. And Scripture says, uh, the soul that is proud, the person that trusts in himself, that exalts himself, is the one who will be laid low. His uh, soul is not upright in him. But the just man, Scripture says, is the one who forsakes himself and lives by faith in God. This is what Jesus commands if you want to survive the arrival of the kingdom. You must repent and believe the gospel. You must live by faith in the Son of God. And that is really the basic, the essence of the Christian religion. The time is fulfilled. God's kingdom is here. Get with it. Come in to the kingdom. So this is what Jesus comes preaching in Galilee. And it is what John the forerunner prepared and announced. And although he is in chains, locked up in prison, as the Apostle Paul says, the word of God is not bound. Jesus, the word made flesh, is going about preaching the kingdom. And this brings us to our uh, second movement in the text, which is the call of Simon and Andrew. So verses 16 to 18 uh, say this. Now, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come, come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. We know from the Gospel of John that Simon and Andrew were formerly disciples of John the Baptist. So there was already some familiarity between them and Jesus prior to this call to follow him. Nevertheless, this call to discipleship comes at a curious time and place. And if you read Mark's gospel, he seems to go out of his way to inform us that these events took place near what he calls the Sea of Galilee. Now, uh, in our minds, when we think of the sea, uh, we think of the ocean. We think of this vast body of water that, you know, is rather uncrossable. Uh, But the Sea of Galilee, in reality, is, you know, tiny uh, compared to uh, the the ocean. I mean, you wouldn't be able to see it from from space. And uh, tiny compared to what we would think of like the Mediterranean Sea. Um, Luke actually calls it a lake. He calls it the Lake of Gennesaret in Luke 5. And so to give you just a little reference for comparison, if you know uh, Lake Washington in Seattle, uh, the Sea of Galilee would be about uh, about twice the size of Lake Washington. So, you know, good-sized lake, but probably hardly what we would think of when we think of a sea, a great vast body of water. But calling uh, this lake the Sea of Galilee is intentional in that it is meant to call, call to mind all of the Old Testament associations that we should have with the sea. The sea, of course, is where fish and other crazy creatures live. It is especially where Leviathan, the great dragon, lives. In Leviticus 11, God gives instructions about what kinds of fish you're allowed to eat. Those are the ones with the fins and the scales. And those that do not have fins and scales, uh, God says, shall be an abomination to you. So if the fish has armor, you can eat it. If it doesn't, you can't, at least back then if you were a Jew. And just as we saw last week that in Scripture, wild beasts represent foreign nations, so also sea creatures symbolize various foreign powers. 
Um, so if you think about the Old Testament, there's all these animals going on, and it's just like it is today with your little kids. You teach kids morals, you teach them lessons by using talking animals, okay? This is basically what the Old Testament is. You're killing animals. Animals represent different kinds of people, different kinds of nations, and that's, that's the Old Testament. The book of Jonah is a story that most people know, and that's probably the most famous example. And there, uh, the great fish that swallows Jonah is an image of Babylon. So Babylon is going to swallow up Israel for a time. It's going to take them away from the land and into the sea. And yet, inside of Babylon, inside the fish, God is going to preserve his people. And then when the exile is over, the three days of death is over, they will be spit out back onto the land. They'll return from exile, which is exactly what happens. So in Scripture, uh, the sea, like the wilderness, is a dangerous place. It's the place that is associated with the nations, and you read, uh, if you read the book of Revelation, same theme. The sea is the nations, the land is Israel. Um, in Revelation, the sea is where the great beast arises from, Revelation 13. And then maybe you've wondered about uh, the end of Revelation when Paul sees a vision of the new heavens and new, new earth. He says, and there is, there is no sea there. There's no sea. Well, he's not saying that you know, you're not going to be able to go to the ocean or something like that. Um, he, he's saying there, there are no more foreign nations worshiping foreign gods because they've all been turned into land. They've all been turned into the holy city, the new Jerusalem. So when the kingdom comes, when the new creation arrives, just as it was with the first creation, the sea gives way to land. So Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. All right, so those are a little bit of the associations there with, with the sea. And he sees two brothers, Simon and Andrew, casting a net into the sea. And he tells them, come and follow me. I will make you into fishers of men. Now it's worth asking the question, why does Jesus choose four fishermen to be his first disciples? And uh, Clearly, the gospel writers want us to know what these men did for a living. And uh, the Holy Spirit does not waste his breath when he writes scripture. He, he doesn't write like modern fiction writers that try to just add uh, detail to make things seem realistic. Every single thing in scripture is put there by the Spirit for a purpose. And there's a reason why we're told that these men are fishers. And we're not told very much about a lot of the other disciples. So why did Jesus choose four fishermen to be his inner circle, his first four disciples? Why not choose shepherds like Moses or David and all the patriarchs were? Right? Think about the Old Testament. Kind of everyone has sheep and cows and goats, and the setting is always you know, on the land. But then when you come to the New Testament, there's this big shift. And suddenly there's boats and storms and waves and shipwrecks and you read Acts and Paul is traveling around like Odysseus bringing the gospel to the islands. Well, this is all part of the promise of God. That when the Messiah comes, he would bring judgment to the Gentiles. He would bring judgment and righteousness to the islands, to the farthest reaches of the earth. And so it is fitting that Jesus chooses four fishermen to be his disciples, to be the ones who will eventually cross the Mediterranean Sea and bring the gospel of the kingdom to the whole world. Little do these two brothers, 
who are just you know, sitting in a boat fishing, little do they know that when they uh, accept this call to follow Jesus, uh, where that is going to take them. Okay? At present, they're just fishing in a little lake, but Jesus is going to send them to fish at the ends of the earth. When you read uh, the Old Testament, uh, fishing does not come up very often. And the, the very few times that it does, it is usually in the context of judgment. Uh, we heard it this morning when Luke read Jeremiah 16. It says, Behold, I will send for many fishers, saith the Lord, and they shall fish them. And after I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. For mine eyes are upon all their ways. They are not hid from my face, neither is their iniquity hid from mine eyes. Or it says in Amos chapter 4, uh, he's talking to the women here. He says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, that are in the mountain of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, Bring and let us drink. The Lord God, the Lord God hath sworn by his holiness that, lo, the day shall come upon you, that he will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. So in the Old Testament, uh, being a fish or being inside a fish, or being a fish caught in a net is typically a sign of judgment, right? It is a sign of being distant and taken away from the promised land. But there is a one text, and only one text, that is an exception to this judgment. And that is the prophecy of Ezekiel 47, which describes the time between the Testaments. So Ezekiel 40 to 48, uh, this is the great vision of the second temple. And there, God reveals to Ezekiel the spiritual reality of the second temple era. When, when God's people return from exile under Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuild Jerusalem, they rebuild the temple, and uh, the physical building was not very impressive. But God shows Ezekiel that during this era of that temple, Nevertheless, the presence of God is going to extend to places that were formerly unreached. The presence of God that was hidden in the most holy place, in that cube, in the tabernacle and the temple, would be expanded to encompass the whole city. Zechariah 14 says that one day the bells of the horses and every pot in Jerusalem shall be holiness unto the Lord. Right? Holiness unto the Lord is what was written on the high priest's head. And then he went into the, the most holy place. And God is saying, eventually, all your common pots and dishes and utensils and the bells on the horses are going to have holiness unto the Lord written upon them, so to speak. This is a sign of holiness expanding during this era. And the image that God gives Ezekiel to uh, show this expansion of holiness is that of a stream a stream that starts from under the temple in Jerusalem and then flows out of the city. And it gets a little bit deeper and a little bit wider until you cannot cross it. So Ezekiel 47, 8 to 10 says this, This water flows towards the eastern region, goes down into the desert and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the rivers go, will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters go there, for they will be healed, and everything will live wherever the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by it, from En Gedi to En Eglaim, 
They will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. So the fact that Simon and Andrew, James and John, are all fishermen is a sign that God has made good on this promise to Ezekiel. So that when you get to the time of the New Testament, you see there are synagogues everywhere. There's these mini temples all across the world. There are Gentile believers. There are Gentile God-fearers who know and love the God of Israel. What God said to Ezekiel has indeed come true. And so when Jesus says to these two disciples, I will make you into fishers of men, he is in effect saying that Jesus is the continuation of Ezekiel's river. And that in Jesus, God's presence is going to extend even further than before. Jesus is, of course, the very holiness of God. And what used to be a sign of judgment under the Old Testament, being caught in a net, having a fish hook in your mouth, will now become a sign of salvation, of being born of water and the Spirit and gathered into the boat of the church. As Ezekiel prophesied, every living thing that moves, wherever that river goes, will live. And isn't that what we're going to see in this gospel? Wherever Jesus goes, he heals, he touches, he brings life. These fishermen will soon preach the gospel. They will soon cast the net, cast the net and gather in souls for Christ's kingdom. Finally, we see in this third movement the call of James and John, another set of brothers. Verses 19 and 20 say, And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. Mark wants us to know what these disciples left behind. He wants us to know the cost of discipleship and the sacrifices it may entail. For Simon and Andrew, it meant leaving behind their livelihood, their vocation, to follow a man that claims to be the Messiah. Uh, That is a leap of faith, and they take it. For James and John, it meant leaving behind family, their father, and his business. And the fact that Zebedee has hired servants suggests that uh, these were not poor fishermen, but had a rather successful business going. In other words, uh, these are not four men who had nothing else going on and could afford to spend a few years traveling. They weren't taking a gap year to find themselves. These were hardworking, blue-collar men who worked with their hands, who did honest labor and made a living, and yet when Jesus calls them to follow him, Mark says, straightway they forsook their nets. Straightway they left their father in the ship. Straightway they went after him. No questions, no objections, no, but first let me, none of that. And this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. This is what our obedience to God should look like. And so we return to the question we began with. We see this example, and are we willing to do the same? What is it that you must forsake and leave behind if you will follow Jesus? What is it that you are holding on to that Christ is asking you to let go of? The answer that we all must give if we want to enter the kingdom is that, in principle, we are willing to give up anything and everything. 
Whatever he asks, we give him. Wherever he calls, we go. All must be surrendered to him if we would be called Christians, disciples of the Lord Jesus. I'll close with this. There are many people who like the idea of following Jesus, but not the reality of it. Maybe they go to church. Maybe they even read their Bible and pray. But when it comes down to it, when God asks them to give up that thing, they refuse to obey him. And that resistance, that unwillingness to let go, is what must die in all of us. That hesitance to heed his voice, that slowness to obey and follow, is what we must continually repent of. And so I leave you with the words of Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62, which say this. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the, ne- of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, you know the things that have a hold on our mind, on our affections, on our attention. You know how earthly-minded we are. And we ask that you would lead us in repentance, that you would uh, soften our hearts to release those things that we don't want to let go of. God, I ask that you would make us as a church to be uh, more immediate in our obedience to you, that we would not waffle, that we would not wait, that we would not hesitate that we would immediately do what you say all the way with a good attitude. We pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. One of the great challenges in the early church was figuring out uh, how to eat together at the same table. For Jews, it was a new thing to be able to eat foods that were formerly unclean. The apostle Peter himself struggled with this, even after receiving a vision three times from God. Old habits die hard, and the new creation Jesus was bringing about was the occasion for much controversy and tension between Jews and Gentiles. Today, there are still uh, many challenges to eating together. Everyone has different tastes, different opinions, different manners, different health regimens, different allergies, diets, etc. And what this table is meant to teach us is that when it comes to mealtime, Love and thanksgiving must rule over us. Love is what unites us as saints, and thanksgiving is what sanctifies our food. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.4 that it is a doctrine of demons that requires abstinence from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. He goes on to say, For every creature of God is good. And nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So as we partake of this sacrament and then go off to our feast together, let us do so with love and thanksgiving. 
love that unites us to Jesus Christ, and thanksgiving that sanctifies whatever we eat. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. Put your hand to the plow, follow Jesus, and do not look back. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. And amen. Amen. Go in peace.